32 counties united by people. My name is Una and my name is Andrea and this is United, united Ireland. Oh Every part. Did we actually get it? I don't think we did. Uh, um, every week in United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. You can take this hell down, <laughs> Hear ye, hear ye. The end is nigh. Before the cliffs crumble to the sea and the oceans boil and frogs fall from the sky and it all just turns to fiery dust. Pay three euro a month for this podcast to keep smart people in your ears and to support an alternative point of view on Irish politics, society, news news and issues. No, what does that say? It says issues and da news with two O's <laughs> and a Z. You could also leave us a review on iTunes. I checked them recently. Um, this was obviously another level of procrastination that I have reached. And oh my God, you're all so nice. Thanks for that. Special shout out to everyone who supports this podcast. You are the absolute biz. Literally the only reason this show is still on the road and we will be on the actual road soon. More on that next week. Andrea's oh, looking surprised, but it is happening. <laughs> no, I'm more like looking surprised that it's very like, I've got really exciting news to tell you guys. I can't wait to tell you. Um, stay tuned to my Instagram. I'll be revealing it in a few weeks. Oh, I wish I could tell you. It's just so exciting. Oh my God, I'm buzzing for me. I hope you are too. <laughs> what are we talking about this week, Andrea? This week, we are talking about the plague of nimbyism. More specifically, though, and in a more nuanced fashion, we're talking about the myths of nimbyism and how many people who object to developments for a variety of reasons, let's be honest, are all bundled into the same category of regressive complaining, not in my back garden, curtain twitchers. So as developments of high density apartment rise, apartments rise, literally, we're going to be talking to architects Alfonso Bonilla and Rob Curley about a bad planning, community organizing, and why not all developments are ones to throw a party about. Sounds good. Yeah, it's very topical. Very topical of us, isn't it? <laughs> but first, it's the state of the nation. Now, this, I just think, now this is kind of one of those things, things you know, and then you just know them more. Um, oh. <laughs> life, eh? So uh, the CSO um, has released uh, these stats from a survey conducted about remote working. And uh, 90% of people aged between 35 and 44 who can work remotely would like to do so when the pandemic restrictions end. This is the constant uh, piece of information that's kind of being received globally about what people who work in screen jobs or in office jobs actually want versus the ongoing construction of offices and the political slash management uh, drive to get people back to the office, get people back to the office. 75% um, of people who were engaged in home duties, I suppose it's working in uh, the home, doing their bits, and seventy percent, and seventy percent, washing. Seventy percent of those unable to work due to health problems would consider employment if it could be done remotely. So there's also other data, kind of coming up that appears to suggest uh, this is in a piece in the uh, Irish Times by Elmer Kennedy that um, the pandemic and the increased remote working 
culture uh, is basically creating more participation in the workforce. So people who may not have been able to work in an office uh, or who lived in a remote area or whatever. Uh, so it's kind of having all these different kind of uh, knock-on impacts. And uh, so that 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 stat, 90%, I mean, it's going to be very difficult for um, offices and office management to say, no, come back to the office, because obviously remote working uh, as an aspect of a job is now going to be really desirable. And people, as we know, there's staffing crises kind of everywhere. Uh, and if people aren't given that option, they'll just leave and go somewhere else. The attrition rate in, in a lot of uh, companies right now is is crazy. And that's aside, obviously, from the staffing crisis and hospitality and, and that kind of stuff. So it would, the pushbacks that I would have, and I don't think they're pushbacks, but I think the conversation that comes from that is then, and it's a good conversation because it's like, well, who's going to buy their sandwiches in town now? Town will be dead or like all the working hubs will be dead. And that's loads of the economy slashed. But it's like, obviously that then paves the way for alternative thinking of people not just going to work so that they can keep the economy going with sandwiches and coffee. Yeah, but also, and also people what who are... places could become. Yeah, and also people who are working outside of city centres and outside of business districts and commercial districts who are working in their own towns or in their own villages or whatever, the economy of those places is being lifted, the sandwiches and the coffee and all that kind of stuff by people who are no longer sitting in traffic and are actually wherever they are and getting their lunch or their coffees or doing their Mm -hmm. shopping or whatever more locally. So I just think that this is, you know, as clear as day and, and, okay, maybe there won't be a commercial property crash, but when you look at the construction of these very, you know, these pre-pandemic offices and it's not... And shiny and reflective. But it's not even a, a, a question now of will the pandemic prevent people from going back to work. It's how the pandemic has induced cultural change within working, what the impact of that will be. Um, I would be really interested in um, the impact on your work colleagues' relationships because Mm. I think because when, as you get older, you obviously choose to hang out with people who have the same opinions as you and being in a work environment forces you then to have to deal with people who may have differing opinions and it keeps you kind of open to um, a world beyond your own world. And it, will that like make people's worlds much smaller in terms of opinions and more kind of... I don't know. I think that like a lot of the, in my experience, the vast majority of issues that people face and their tensions and disgruntlements and stress in a working environment tends to come from the people they work with mm. rather than the actual job that they're doing. So I think that, you know, that's why HR was invented, right? <laughs> to try and like <laughs> make people not break down uh, all of the relationships and and how that would impact on the productivity or whatever you want to, however you want to frame it. Unit of produce. Unit selling your labor in a transactional manner. <laughs> so I think that like, uh, yeah, I think that people, I think it, it's, it's kind of a crisis for middle management and as well, mm-hmm. because when your job is to manage people, in a building and manage workflows in that manner, 
obviously loads of people have had to change that and HR has become a different thing because you're managing all these people remotely and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think people just like you have more free time, you have you have less commuting time, you have better quality of life. A lot of parents get to spend more time with their kids. It may also shave off childcare costs because it's not an extra hour or whatever coming home. So it's it's just for me, it's just like a no brainer. And if you um, have the space, if you have the space, of course, because one of the biggest issues with remote working in Ireland is the housing crisis. Mm. And and one of the things that, that they're, you know, these kind of stuff that was coming out last year of like, well, you know, people in their 20s really want to get back to the office. And yeah, because they're sitting on their beds with a laptop, you know. So, um, yeah, it also calls for bigger, more more space in, in the housing that's being built and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, which, my, we'll come to. which we will come okay. to. Uh, what else is going on State of the Nation? Mm-hmm. So in a really up optimistic and upbeat moment, <laughs> um, the Earth's sixth mass extinction, extinction has begun, according to scientists, which is great news. Um, and uh, there was a bit of pushback of like, <clears throat> well, we've had five more mass extinctions and we're grand now, so we'll get through this one. But actually, l- like hundreds and hundreds of land animals will be extinct within the next 200 years. Like, that is insane where that extinction would have taken 1.3 million years to happen. That is now happening in minute times in comparison. That was a study done by the Union for Conservation of Nature. Um, And it really is very, dare I say it, alarming (laughs) when you think about this mass extinction that's happening and how the fires keep in flames. It's It's very terrifying. Is there something that we can look forward to in the state of the nation? In better news, the hospitality restrictions are due to be lifted next week. So is that least, confirmed? Well, Eamon Ryan is hoping. Right. Well, we're so, all hoping, Eamon. We're all hoping, yeah. <laughs> but I, I dare I say it. I, I don't dare. I don't dare if I do. I, I love the little eight o'clock closing. And obviously that's banana ten. That is totally banana chain. I, I, I do see that but there's like, merit in it, like in terms I, I of self-restraint. I, need, I don't think I should need a restriction to tell me to go home. No. <laughs> Maybe that's, it's more about me. I'm, I'm also not convinced that it's ever worked uh, in your life before either. <laughs> I don't know what aspersion you're casting, but I don't know if I'm happy to take it. <laughs> Next up, the Minister of State for the National Drug Strategy will today tell an Oireachtas committee that a war on drugs is not an effective response. Uh, no shit, Sherlock. Well, that's good that it's being said, apart from in the UK, where they're like... Frank Fegan as well. Yeah. Well, I hopefully we can just keep doing good things in Ireland and not bad things, you know, that our cultural changes evolve into smart, progressive, unifying, practical and, uh, you know, just forward thinking which not. leads me very perfectly on to the reminder that the consultation on the sale of alcohol closes on Friday. Get on to justice.ie and put your two cents in there. I had my sister doing it and she's like, I don't like saying words, Andrea. Like I tried to do it myself and it's fair. They ask you for loads of words that I don't know the answers to. 
And I was like, just leave them blank if you don't know the answer. And the bits that you do know, now put them in. And like one of the questions was like, do you think our licensing of alcohol is long enough or the hours are? And she was like, no, I think they need to be longer. And that was it. Boom, done. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to make a big deal about it. Just get on, put whatever thoughts you have in whatever way you want to do your words. You don't have to write an essay. Just do it, like Nike would say. Great advice. Now it's time for a conversation about planning, objections, nimbyism and progress. So we've been following the work of um, Alfonso Mio and Rob Curley for the last while. And you may have seen their names pop up in various news articles over the past few months most recently in relation to the controversy surrounding the 1,600, um, 1,600 bill to rent homes on the Holy Cross College site in Dublin 9. And also on EcoEye, the episode about towns that I loved. Oh, excellent. Um, Rob and Alfonso objected to the development of the Holy Cross uh, College site, as others did, uh, but like many people, are then met with the reality of pursuing a judicial review, which is basically taking the plan to court when all recourse is run out in the planning system. And in this instance, new rules around judicial reviews would have exposed them to the prospect of having to pay up to 200,000 euros if that review was unsuccessful. That information was laid out in Killian Housing King Woods's reporting in the Sunday Business Post. Um. But what accompanies a lot of discourse around developments that are being built or that are going through the planning process right now can broadly be categorized as two things. One is people demanding better housing developments that actually mean community building as opposed to just building. And on the other side, um, not to make it about binaries or whatever, but there can be a cohort of people who call any objections to housing and a housing crisis obstructionist or nimbyism. Mm Um, so we're going to talk through all of that. Welcome to the podcast, Alfonso and Rob. Good morning and thank you for uh, uh, reaching out to us. We're very happy to talk to you guys about NIMBYism and development. Uh, it's, it's definitely what, I, what we do for a living. So uh, more than happy to join the conversation. Yeah. Th- thanks both. And thanks very much for the invitation to the pod. We're really happy to chat to you both. Deadly. First of all, what is it that you guys do? Introduce yourself to our wonderful listeners. So uh, our professional life, we're both architects and I'll make one minor correction, Andrea. It wasn't actually EcoEye. I was on a show called Drehid Naheran speaking about oh, in the Dublin Docklands. Uh, just as valid uh, RTE content. But it was um, stunning. It was about the, the gorgeous bridge. And the manta ray shaped bridge there yeah. in the docks, yeah, by the very talented Amanda Lovett architects. Um, so we're, we're professional architects and we have our own company. We're... Uh, a fledgling practice. So we work with private developers, we work with homeowners, we do a range of projects. Um, I suppose the reason why we've been in the media is because we, I describe this myself as having become a bit radicalized by housing in this country. And it's because of specific housing developments that are cropping up, which were sort of um, inevitable that they would because of changes that have occurred in the last uh, number of years around the uh, housing policy and the regulatory system about planning. Uh, you say about the planning system and the changes. Can you explain a bit about um, what SHDs are, what they do to planning regulations and what their future is? As it seems a lot of these, shall we say, problematic developments are getting through on SHDs. 
So if we, if we think about what an SHD is, we have to think about what the planning process is. Effectively, every, every county council comes up with a, you know, they have democratically elected uh, representatives. Uh, every seven years, they get together to draft a development plan. And that basically means that there is literally a plan for the future of development of a, of a, of a town or, or, or a county or, or whatever. Um, and in these plans, uh, it set out the, the type of densities that the, that the city is going to allow and they're going to plan for for the next number of years, uh, the types of, of development, the zoning in areas, um, and, and various other things. Now, that's on one side. On the other, on the other side, there is um, a section 28 in, in planning, which was introduced by Alan Kelly. Uh, what section 28 does is that it basically gives the minister at, in turn um, kind of like um, extraordinary powers. And these extraordinary powers allow the minister to, to set new rules um, you know, in, 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 a, in a way it's a good thing because they could say, well, we're, we're letting the minister act uh, in, 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 in a time of urgency. Uh, but what this has created is that after Alan Kelly introduced uh, Section 28, there was a number of SPPRs. And SPPRs means Specific Planning Policy Requirements. Um, these SPPRs are basically guidelines, guidelines that override um, the Planning and Development Act, the environmental, uh, uh, um, environmental aims, and, uh, and they are basically mandatory over <clears throat> what anything else has been written, even by uh, uh, democratically elected representatives. So what, what that means is that the Minister for Housing can effectively set uh, housing policy directly and you as an applicant can disregard the local development plan. So when we talk about strategic housing developments, where they came from um, is their origin is much the same as where the SPPR is introduced under Owen Murphy came, which is actually, they, they came from Alan Kelly. And sorry, they came from uh, Simon Coveney in this instance. Strategic housing developments were introduced by Simon Coveney. And where did he get this great idea? Well, he was listening to the radio one day and he heard a member of Property uh, Industry yeah. Ireland. And it's interesting you mentioned earlier uh, Housing King Killing Woods, because I have here his submission to the Oireachtas, um, and sorry, the Joint Oireachtas Commission on <coughs> Housing, Local Government and Heritage. And this covers very well the kind of background to lobbying, which is kind of the basis of our current policy, which is why we're having so many issues. And... Basically, representatives of Property Industry Ireland um, had a coordinated campaign to lobby the minister. And the minister met with their representatives over a number of weeks and had, I think it was five or six meetings, about four hours in length each time. And at the end of this, he produced lock, stock and barrel, what they asked for, which was this, this notion of allow us to go over the heads of the local authority, go directly to onboard Panala with any scheme that's got more than 100 units. And you've got this great power under Section 28 of the Planning Act to, to make specific planning policies that disregard the local authority. So if we ask you to do X, can you, can you do that? Like, and the kind of subsequent housing minister was Owen Murphy. And in that instance, it's sort of an, a question of like, if you push on an open door, you know, what do you expect will happen? And Owen Murphy was leaned on by the property industry and went and did things that they asked him to do. So if you remove height guidelines nationally and you say to developers, you can disregard Dublin City Council's development plan, you can apply for 18 stories on that site if you want, then 
developers are going to do that. If you tell developers you can do co-living because the minister is saying it, even if Dublin City Council says you can't do co-living, the minister is saying you can. Well, developers are going to naturally do what makes them the most money because that's the nature of their of their business. Mm. This is where we get, I suppose, as you're outlining this constant um, confusion, I suppose, around county development plans and yet the things that override them. And so the the development plans and actually the planning system itself kind of gets usurped. Uh, And we kind of know why that happened, right? Because there was no construction immediately post-crash. But I think what we're seeing now in so many different ways is these hangovers of crash policies that didn't that tried to leverage or create um, construction or tried to stimulate the economy in particular ways uh, didn't really do that much because there was no money in it. Now that there is money in it, these things that were designed for really, really limited construction eras are now just like have, have really taken on a life of their own. Right. It kind of feels like that. And they still exist, even though we're no longer in an austerity scenario. Um, I want to know, let's take a case study that you guys have experienced. What was your experience with the Holy Cross site development? Can you tell us about that development and how you kind of got involved in it? Okay, so uh, the Holy Cross College uh, SHD is a proposal by by Heinz uh, in the former uh, grounds of Holy Cross College in Drumcondra. Um, they proposed 1,614 uh, new, new apartments uh, with a 70% one bed and studio ratio. And then the rest were, were two beds and three beds. But there was, a, I think there was only like um, a very, a very three, 3% of the units were actually going to be uh, three, three beds. beds. So th- those are like the stats. It was going to be in, um, in over, uh, I think, 12 towers, 12, 12 uh, structures, uh, 12 uh, apartment buildings. And um, the tallest one is an 18-story tower. Uh, so this development has been designed by, I think, five different architect uh, studios uh, from, of all scales, from really small ones and really famous ones to really uh, um, corporate kind of uh, uh, bigger scale architects. Um, when we saw the plans, uh, we realized that they were all built to rent. And <clears throat> we have a concern about uh, built to rent, mainly because it basically means that nobody can ever own an apartment. And we can get into that in a little bit. But uh, we realized as well that kind of the rhetoric online and the rhetoric on, on, on media was that, uh, you know, people were had these like terrible opinions about about the people who are going to live there. You know, people were being called uh, racist or ageist or ableist for opposing these homes. Um, and, and we realized that the, the reason why uh, basically the developers and some commentators were piggyback, piggybacking on calling people racist for objecting to these kind of de- developments was likely because they didn't have the language to to express what is why they see uh, a problem with this development, and I suppose like the the kind of crux of why this as a build to rent scheme is a problem is because when you're developing something to a build to rent as a specific build to rent uh, scheme in Ireland, you can avail of these specific planning policy requirements that the housing minister sets, and under specific planning policy requirement eight, the minister basically allows a bill to rent 
scheme to opt out of a bunch of other standards. There's, there's a whole section called safeguarding high standards that it specifically says build to rent can ignore that. So this isn't what, a great... What are examples of those? So if you have, for example, a corridor in an apartment scheme, you can only have 12, up to 12 units, share that corridor on any floor. A build to rent scheme can ignore that. Um, 50% of your, only 50% of your scheme has to have dual aspect. Um, in terms of your private amenity space, you can, you don't have to have private amenity space in a build to rent scheme. So that means like a balcony. So you don't need to have a balcony. Your storage requirements can be reduced. And the, the big one that we come down to is space standards. So what um, that section of safeguarding high standards is about is saying, okay, we don't want to just have the minimum is 45 square meters for a one bed. The minimum is 73 square meters for a two bed. And the minimum is 90 square meters for a three bed. So we want to have a mix of one beds, two beds, three beds, and studios as well. There, there is a, a space for those. Now, if you want to make the most money, you want to get the, the, the maximum number of small units because that's what gives you your biggest, your biggest profit um, in terms of square meters and land use. You don't have to have a set mix with built to rent. So you can make up your own mix. Any other, a non-built to rent scheme has a minimum number of three beds. It's about 15% need to be three bed. And it's generally about 50% then are two beds. So with built to rent, you can ignore this. So the scheme up in Drumcondra was designed with 70% studios and one beds. And it's designed to these lower standards. So you could have, for example, 16 units all sharing one corridor. The other thing with these schemes then is they're often, there's no lobbies within apartment units. So you can imagine you have to go across your, your living space to get, uh, to go from your, so you have to go across your kitchen to get from your bedroom out of the apartment. So that also means that if you've got all of your, every apartment, 16 of them have got their kitchens or the living rooms with no lobby off of the corridor, you're going to have issues with noise pollution. You're going to have basically a, a lesser quality of amenity for your, your, your home because. Let's just say, right, I'm a developer. And let's just say that I am saying, well, guys, we need these places for people who are, you know, they don't have a lot of stuff, so they don't need storage. They're not really in their in their place of living very often because they're working and they're off doing their and they're out socializing. They love socializing those people who live in those houses. So we need these type of housing. What would you say to that? Which is what the conversation has kind of descended into really. Yeah. And Alfonso, you mentioned the kind of the accusations of racism. I think that kind of ties in when people talk about transient community. And that's been filtered by people who want to criticize that as saying that people don't want people who've moved to Ireland to live beside them. But it's actually about people don't want a high attrition rate in places that aren't actually that don't root themselves um, within a community. And that has nothing to do with where people who are living there may be from. And it actually goes beyond that because it is a built-in transience to this apartment. So, so the transience is built into the design of the apartments. Like, like you said, Andrea, it's, it's basically the apartments are like, oh, you know, they're smaller because those people are not going to be here for a long time. Those people who we are designing these houses for, who are those people? Who, who are like, who is a person who would be happy to be discriminated against uh, and be, you know, given a specific type of housing in, in big quotation marks. Um, or quite a price. 
it's it's a it's absolutely uh, nonsensical. So I think that it's actually quite problematic that we have housing policy that creates a subclass of homes for renters, and that's actually extremely problematic because we are saying you you who are a renter uh, deserve a lesser home by policy, and um, I, I just want to say that the that the, the specific wording in in the design standards for new apartments, which is a government um, <clears throat> a government document, is that these types of housing are designed for a young, uh, international, and increasingly increasingly mobile workforce. So this is this is uh, this is uh, othering people by design by policy. So. I think that when I when I talk about like people not having the right language or the or the right kind of way of expressing this, it's exactly that there is a built-in transience into this apartment. It is a high turnover that allows these developers to continue making loads of money. That's the reason why they make money. They don't make money from people staying in these apartments long term, and the reason why they can't stay long term is because a the apartments have lower standards of. Uh, of storage, they have, <clears throat> for all the reasons that we've talked about, for all the reasons that are included in SVPR 8, uh, but also uh, they're, they're able to have these really high rents in these apartments because they're saying, well, you know, these are apartments for, for you know, uh, the Googles of, of, of Ireland, you know, they're coming here to, to stay for three years. So naturally they're going to want to stay in, uh, you know, high spec apartments. So these are going to be luxury shoe boxes. Uh, we are going to make some really uh, fancy, new, A-rated um, subclasses of homes. And this allows them to basically create an asset class that, it, that, it, that is uh, just insanely productive in terms of, uh, of economic units. So if you look at what's already built, um, there is a development in Griffith Wood, which I share screenshots as often as I can. A one-bedroom apartment there costs 1000 950, 1, 950 euro a month to rent. That is a one bedroom apartment. A three bedroom apartment costs 3,000 and some euro to rent. So if you make a calculation over this um, for a three bedroom apartment or even for a one bedroom, bedroom apartment, in order for you to rent a one bedroom apartment in this, in this uh, scheme, you need to be earning over 100,000 euro a year. And this is something that actually uh, Irish institutional property has come up with um, in a report themselves. They are saying that all of the new apartments that are that are being um, delivered are for salaries of that height. That is, uh, you know, less than ten percent of the Irish population who are earning those salaries. And if you're telling telling me now that the majority of all new stock that is becoming that is being built is for that top ten percent. Um, I just don't think that it is realistic to expect that people who are earning these salaries are going to end up wanting to waste their high salaries in these subclasses of apartments. It doesn't make sense. Mm. So what makes sense is that this is an extremely productive asset class. What happened then with the Holy Cross site? Because obviously there was a lot of publicity around, um, well, there was not, not enough maybe, but there was some publicity around people objecting and you guys objected. What happened next? Um, well, uh, all these observations, so they're actually called observations yeah. to an application, right? And, and that is um, 
that, that is actually under Article 29 of the Planning and Development Regulations 2001 that establishes that people have the right to submit an observation. That is a democratic uh, kind of uh, part of, the, of our planning process. Um, so we submitted observations. Uh, there was 120 submitted observations. Um, we leafleted in the neighborhood and we talked about it on, on the media as much as we could. And we explained to people why there was a problem with it. Um, so anyway, all the submissions were made. Dublin City Council made its own submission, um, kind of backing what we had actually said about the, the rental aspect of it, about the, the density, about the inadequate uh, services, the, the, the unit mix, uh, the inadequate unit mix, um, and so on and so forth. And then that went onto onboard plan all. Um, we actually, as well, re, uh, requested oral hearings, and there was a number of, of observations that, requ that, that requested oral hearings. Uh, but ultimately, Amor Plana decided to grant permission uh, for this scheme with some minor um, uh, amendments. So that, that it actually puts it that uh, with those amendments, uh, as as required by Amor Planada, they they can build like one thousand five hundred and ninety apartments instead of one thousand six hundred and fourteen. But anyway, um, so then there was a period of five weeks by which the public, uh, the people who are, who have submitted observations, can uh, make an appeal uh, to. To lodge a judicial review. Lodge a judicial review. Yeah. Which is separate, which is separate to an appeal. So judicial review is basically you're saying that there was a problem in the um in the process, in the planning process. So the way in which the scheme was actually assessed by onboard Panala, they made a mistake. So usually where these are successful or where they're brought is to do with an environmental concern. So you have cost protection under something called the Aarhus Convention. That means if you say, for example, apply for a wind farm in a bog and you haven't done the correct environmental impact assessment on that and the planners have then given you permission, you would be able to bring a judicial review because you could say the, sorry, you'd be able to bring a successful judicial review because you, you'd be able to point to the planning process and say, well, look, when the planners are doing their assessments, they didn't, check your environmental impact assessment correctly. However, uh, there's been a number of changes to judicial reviews when uh, in, the last, in the last year. And there's one case in particular, which basically has meant if you're bringing grounds that are not strictly environmental, and there's a conversation about whether a contravention of a development plan uh, is an environmental concern or not. But if you're bringing grounds that are not strictly environmental, you no longer have cost protection in, uh, in, in, our, in the courts. Now, the other very recent change to judicial reviews, uh, so not change, but the other like sort of case that came up in the last couple of weeks was a case in South County Dublin where it was ruled that these, uh, sorry, a scheme was thrown out because it contravened the development plan. Right. So just like, what is a development plan? A development plan is in, in a sense, an environmental contract. So it's, it's a contract that sets, you know, here's how we're going to set up the built environment in our city. So one could make the case that if you break, the, if you willingly break the development plan in your planning scheme, that you've broken an environmental contract. Unfortunately, the Irish courts ruled last year that that is not the case. And therefore, when we went to look, in, look into a judicial review as a final way to actually appeal what, what we just consider is like a, a travesty in terms of like community planning and future planning. Design. In, in Dublin, we were 
basically exhausted. We couldn't go further. And so, yeah, go, go ahead. On. No, no, this is something that people I think are experiencing around um, Dublin in particular. Uh, I Like, for example, at the O'Devany Gardens site, which Bartra have really kind of changed what they initially got planning for. And now it's quite, quite different. Um, and yeah, the only other thing you could do is a judicial review. But of course, when a community comes together to discuss that and one or two people have to take it and then you could be like quarter of a mil in the hole. You know, I mean, that's it's it's such an it's such an obstacle to actually uh, there. There just does not seem to be much recourse for people uh, who are genuinely appraising not just what a new development means to their community, but what that new development will mean to the quote unquote community that will end up living there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was wondering, like, are you seeing these kind of trends all around the city, like in terms of what's getting go ahead right now, that it just seems to be the momentum of the housing crisis has opened up, um, you know, uh, 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 context where anything can get built, basically. So I, we go back to this notion of the strategic housing development and the SPPRs and basically what they what they've done at a government level to set up a conflict in the planning system. So it means if you are a big corporate body and you want to push ahead with, a, a, say, a housing development that breaks the development plan, here's how you do it. And obviously then there's going to be massive conflict with a community when you're doing that because you're not engaging. Like The whole notion of this going is to go over the heads of not only communities but county councils as well. And that is going to generate massive conflict. Unfortunately, that is the nature of our housing policy at the moment. So we are seeing all over the city and and Dublin in particular that there's these SHDs going up that people are massively opposed to for for various reasons. I, I think there was a, um, a judicial review done in my area and it, it won, but then it was appealed just before Christmas. Even after the judicial review, you're like, but we've gone to this lens and now you're appealing that. It feels that's, very frustrating. And that is very frustrating. There's just actually like something interesting about judicial reviews there, which is that it's ridiculous that we're that anyone, any ordinary citizen has to take a judicial review. And it's it's funny in terms of how it's posited now, it's that, oh well, look, we have to get rid of judicial reviews because all of these individuals are stopping housing because they're taking judicial reviews because we set up a system where they have to take judicial reviews to have their voices heard. But Bartra that you mentioned earlier, uh, Una. They, I believe, have launched their own judicial review against the O'Devney Gardens scheme yeah. because they want to be able to sell a bulk of units to um, investment funds. And there's a specific uh, planning condition yeah. that they're not allowed to do that. So we yeah. celebrate taking a judicial review. Well, of course, yeah, because Bartra can absolutely take a, a bajillion judicial reviews because they have the pockets for it. And unfortunately... You know, they could have because the clause in the planning or the thing that was in the planning uh, about, yeah, you can build all this stuff, but you won't you can't just bulk sell it. You know that I'm not sure how much that stands up in planning policy, you know, um, but on the other side, the community that was told this is what the development will be like. Uh, and then that completely changes, have no recourse because, you know, I think it's it's really, really pertinent that an awful lot of these massive developments 
you know, they're not going up in Donnybrook and in Balls Bridge and in Fox Rock. They're going up in areas of Dublin, Dublin 8, Dublin 7. Okay, in your case, it's Dublin 9, which is, you know, per capita, a, a wealthier place or whatever. Um, you know, the, the part of Dublin 9 that, 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 that the Holy Cross thing is in and in Dublin 1 and all that kind of stuff. And we're seeing this direct um, correlation of corporate gentrification uh, and particular like built around stuff that is totally rooted in uh, prob- being quite, a, of course, is quote unquote undeveloped land, but also being aware of the lack of wealth and the fact that there isn't a senior council in every second house or whatever in certain communities that can just be pushed over. I mean, that's what it kind of feels to me. Like there's obviously a, a massive class issue um, going on here as well. But I was wondering like, what, what, like as architects, what is your idea of a dream housing development? Like what should we be building in the city and do any of, have you seen any plans on particular things that go, yeah, they've got a right. Finally, something good. Come on. <laughs> well, I, we actually uh, we actually met with a few architects last night, and you know we kind of brought this up. We we brought up we brought up like you know what is ideal housing, and uh, one of the things that I think we we all agreed upon was that uh, new housing or housing should kind of consider people's entire life cycles. It should be. Uh, places where you can be born, where you can, uh, you know, grow into an adult, where you can, you know, go into a relationship, break up from a relationship, you know, go create a family and eventually, you know, actually find yourself uh, a place where you can be there forever, if, if you so choose. Um, so that's kind of like the, the first, the very first basic for housing. It should be a place where you can, you can actually develop throughout your whole life. You should have your entire livelihood uh, in, in its design. Um, the second one is that there should be some flexibility. I think, um, uh, we've talked about, uh, well, I've talked about a little bit about, um, some apartments that are, that are being built, um, that are basically, uh, come low spec, like low, low, um, low spec in terms of like, they're basically blank slates. So you buy, you are able to buy a 50 square meter apartment, um, five by 10 meters and they're like five meters tall. So that allows you to actually build a mezzanine or a second floor within, within the apartment. And what this does is that it actually allows people to buy apartments at a, at a cheaper cost. Uh, so that means that more people can access home ownership and it actually gives them the flexibility to lay out the apartment to suit their lifestyle. So if you're a musician or if you're a, if you're a, a painter or if, you, or if you're a doctor or whatever, you're, you're going to want to live in a different way. Let's say that you're a, um, uh, a chef, you might be able to make a bigger kitchen. If you're a painter, you might make some space so you can actually paint and, and have like a studio space. If you're a doctor, you're you're gonna wanna wanna have maybe a space that is particularly private because you get very little time off. So you want absolute darkness to sleep. So all of these complexities of individual of, of individuals' lives have to be uh, possible, and and I think that that's one of the biggest challenges that individuality uh, has to come into play. Um, and, and another, another part of it is that, um, in terms of ideal housing, there has to be more density so that, you know, cities can actually respond to change and you can actually have more people living together. Um, but there has to be, um, a, a co- co- cohesive density. You can't have, you shouldn't have 
<clears throat> developments where nobody knows each other because there's just too many doors per corridor. You shouldn't have uh, apartments that are so small that you can't actually, you know, myself being from Mexico, uh, if I was to live in a small apartment, my apartment shouldn't be so small that I can't uh, invite my parents over to visit me from Mexico. It shouldn't be that um, that uh, prohibitive. And I, I think in Dublin, we can look kind of to our past if we want to see what, what's successful housing. And you only have to look at housing that was built for workers in the mid 20th century is now being colonized by the middle class. So you go to East Wall and there's new little cafes popping up around the place. And it's a lovely, vibrant area and it's got a gentle density. But it does achieve a good density. And there was a great study done by John Dobbin of Shea Cleary Architects that you can find online that looked at a, I think it was a three-story masonette typology that could work in Dublin that is basically achieves a very high density by applying the same kind of logic that we had with, say, you know, up in Sony, uh, where you are, you know, where you've got these tight streets, but you've got dense plots. And we need to, to think about Dublin in that way is what's the kind of gentle density that we want to achieve? And at the end of the day, Dublin is a European city. It's a European capital. And we look at where is this done successfully? It's done successfully in the Netherlands with, say, four stories or six stories. It's done successfully in Paris, where you've largely got six stories throughout the city. And it's done successfully in Copenhagen. And those are the models that we should be following. What we're getting up with the Bartras in, and, and the Heinzes and co is we're getting Hong Kong levels of 300 units per hectare, as opposed to your 30 units per hectare or, or more that, or say 45 that you're getting in Paris. So if we just start plonking Hong Kong type densities in around the city, it's not going to, it's not going to give us the communities that we want long-term and it's, it's not going to solve the housing crisis. What, what we need to do is set at a policy level, the outcomes that we want. And at the moment, what we've got is policy that has an outcome, which is property policy, which is mm. how can big developers and big finance make the most money off of property? Well, here's how you set up SHGs and you have SVPRs that allow them to do that. If you decide at policy level, we want communities with gentle density, we want to achieve, you know, this property ownership, then we'll get that. I suppose what's lost in this conversation a lot of the times when there's two binary conversations happening is that we're trying to create a society that we all want to live in that reflects our lives and has somewhere for everyone to live. But there's, there does seem to be a bit of listening going on and within planning world, I suppose, um, with news that the redevelopment for Teresa's Gardens was scaled back by the Land Development Agency. The 22 stories went to 15, et cetera. So do you think that's a trend that might start to uh, ripple out or am I just being optimistic? I think that you're being cautiously optimistic and, and uh, that's something that I, that I actually um, kind of try to tell everybody who would listen uh, in terms of entering the planning process. You have to enter this with uh, enthusiasm and optimism because this is development is for a hundred years. So these conversations are going to keep going on for, you know, for a decade. The, the reason why we have built rent and all these policies is because we have a government that, you know, is, is on a period basis. So at the end of the term, they want to stay in place so that they can continue pushing some the policies that they think are helpful, whatever they might be. Um, so I think that, 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 that it is a positive to see that some councillors are listening. We know that the new um, Dublin Development Plan, which is currently in, in terms of um, 
of observations, so people can actually submit observations on the on the Dublin City Development Plan. Um, have uh, have clauses to kind of curtail a bill to rent, and they're actually saying, okay, if we're going to have bill to rent, then you can't have more than uh, I don't know the the, the specific uh, text, but you can't have too much bill to rent uh, in less than three in more than three kilometers or whatever. So I have to look at that in in detail, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that people are definitely listening. I, I know that, for example, you had a conversation with Ona Brin and Ona Brin talked specifically about built rent. We know that Hazel Chu actually talked about built rent in the in the development plan, and she was berated online for for introducing anything that, that had to do with built rent because that is a moneymaker, and that is where a lot of economists are actually uh, coming up with, with reports to make sure that this this stays. Um, Tina McVeigh is also talking about built rent and, and curtailing it. So I think that, that yes, I think that our, our representatives are listening. But the ones who are not listening are the ones that are in true control. And that is, for example, Pascal Donahue. Pascal Donahue is actually uh, a TD in this area. Um, and, you know, he does, he completely, I've written to him uh, by mail. I've, I've sent him letters about this. And he just responds with a copy-paste kind of response. He's not actually listening. Dara O'Brien, who is a minister for housing, could also be listening a bit more. Um, if I could just go back to your, your point about St. Teresa's Gardens and uh, what's actually really interesting about St. Teresa's Gardens, and I think that uh, you know a lot of people need to hear this, is that that plan scaled back the development from, I think it was going to deliver 700 units, it's now going to deliver 540 units. They have spent five years to, to make that decision. They've basically gone back to a scheme that they had in 2017. So um, what they, what they, how they managed to do that was they went through a consultative process with the local community and they, they wound up scaling back the level of some of the towers. Now, the reason they do that is because it's going to improve the quality of the apartments that are eventually built there. But we have spent, and I, I think that this can like sum up what's wrong with housing policy since 2018, is that all of the dithering about, no, we need to get a 30-story tower here because tall means good. We've spent five years dithering and nothing's been built. And we're going back to a plan, a reasonable plan from 2017 that will deliver over 500 apartments. And we've spent five years arguing back and forth about, no, I want to get 700 and that's going to solve everything. If we had just settled on the scheme in 2017 with, the, with good planning, we would have 540 apartments already. I think this is why the, sorry, sorry, Alfonso there. I think this is why the conversation needs to be framed as what's causing the delay is not people making observations or objecting, quote unquote. What's causing it is that bad developments are being suggested and being planned. And And everybody knows that developers suggest things that they don't even that they're not even going to do, that they reach for the moon and the hope that they'll get the stars. And if you say, we're going to build 24 studios, there are 24 stories and everybody goes, oh, that's outrageous. That needs to be scaled back. And it's like, okay, well, here's 18 or 19. When in actual fact, the site is probably far better suited to like 10. So I think that like the the, the thing that I kind of would like to ask uh, before you guys go is, how do people fight for better housing without being represented represented as NIMBYs? Because I find it so tiresome to hear these rebuttals and ideological, you know, dogmatic playbook, unoriginal 
pushback from economists, from from right wing economists, from from various people like that and from right wing commentators as well, or just kind of people who who are, are quite close minded that like, you know, you're against housing. We have to do this now. And they're, and like, how, how do people fight for better housing without being tired with all that brush or just people going, here's a spreadsheet. We actually need loads of studios when we know that that's not a nice and pleasant way to live. Well, there's, I want to start with like two things. So the first one is something that Orla Hegarty actually said. So basically NIMBY is a word used to malign or discourage people who participate in a democratic process. This is very important. Participation in the planning process is democracy. If you don't want participation, that means that you don't want democracy. And if you don't want democracy, you're in the wrong country. So if, you, if you're going to have a planning process in this country, it requires public participation. And I encourage anybody who's out there listening, anybody and everybody who listens to participate in the, in the planning process. If you see uh, as, uh, a site notice, read it. If you see something that, that you like, make an observation about it and say, you know what, this would be a positive development for the city. If you see something that you don't like about it, actually this would be a bad um, addition to the city. Participate. I encourage everybody to participate. NIMBY is basically a pejorative, uh, it's, it's almost a slur to be called that. And it is actually used to, to intimidate people. Do not be intimidated by, by commentary, co- commentary calling people NIMBYs. If you hear somebody calling NIMBY, you actually know that this person is acting in bad faith. Uh, whenever I studied in UBC, I actually took a course with uh, uh, Professor uh, Benjamin Richardson, who is uh, a professor of, of environmental law at the University of Tasmania and the University of British Columbia. And we actually focused a lot about uh, cases on environmental law. And we started talking about nimbyism and how nimbyism actually came from um, kind of a political battle in the U.S. for for um, shallow burial sites for low, low toxic uh, radioactive waste. So whenever radioactive waste started to be kind of buried and kind of put away, a lot of states in the states, because they have autonomy, started saying, not here, not in my backyard, not, not, in, not in Washington, not in, you know, not in all these places. So that, that was like um, a big movement by the state saying that like, you're not gonna be putting radioactive waste here. But the states that still were able to do that ended up having to come up with actual locations to bury the, to bury the, the radioactive waste. And what ended up happening was that people, so communities where, that were close to these new sites that had been picked, were having to take these like, legal routes and legal avenues to challenge uh, the government's decision to, to, to do this. So the government was like, well, we have the, the environmental reports said that this is you know, safe. Now all we have to do is deal with the NIMBY syndrome. So this is actually uh, a, this is actually an invention that, that came up in the 1970s and the 80s. This is something that is actually used to to, shot, to 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 kind of chastise people and say like, don't oppose to what I want to do. Stop that. And 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 there's something that that, that kind of hit me as well, which is uh, something that Jane Jacobs said. Right? She, she was she was a writer. Uh, in New York, and she actually opposed a lot of a lot of uh, in, inappropriate development. But she she said, "It is so easy to blame the decay of cities on traffic, on immigrants, or the whimsies of the middle class. The decay of cities goes deeper and is more complicated. It goes right down to what we think we want and to our ignorance into our ignorance of how cities work." So I think that we really need to to think about. Uh, 
this this idea, this this pantomime uh, uh, evil man of the serial objector of the NIMBY, that is as real as a banshee. It is just there to scare the kids and make sure that they don't go out there and make an observation against an SHD. And I think that point of the myth of the serial objector and the ignorance around why are our cities not working, that's where the solution to the crisis is. And that's where, like, that's where you can, you can break through this rhetoric. The fact that we can speak with, with you guys and we're on a podcast talking about housing policy and you can use this platform to inform people. Actually, if you look up the design standards for new apartments 2018 and have a read through there, you can see that basically the property lobby gave our minister a document and said, look, all of the young and increasingly internationally mobile workers are clamoring for co-living and built to rent. So please build it quickly to solve the housing crisis. Look, that's that's a very <laughs> <laughs> like the fact that we can talk about section 28 of the planning act 2015 specific planning policy requirements people now know about these things and so they can't just be told oh well the NIMBYs are all objecting to everything that's why housing is being delivered no housing is being skewed towards niche uh, profit-driven financial assets that benefit 500 billion euro dutch pension funds and canadian pension funds so you get what you you get what policy is designed to deliver and policy is designed to deliver, you know, for massive uh, investor type housing. Are we going to get a change in policy? Is that what we we're have at? to? We How have to get a change that? in policy. How do we do that? We, we, we have to participate. So you make observations to, to, to planning applications and people have to read them. You, you call your, your local representatives, your, your local representatives. You, you speak to as many people as you can. You write to the Minister for Housing. You write to Pascal Donahue. You try to, to make your voice heard and you actually try to learn more about the process. Like th that's what we have to do. We know that uh, there is going to be an incredibly toxic political battle uh, the, as, as we get closer to an election time. And, you know, I, I'm an immigrant, I can't vote, uh, but I know that that's going to happen. And I know that, that more people are going to be labeled all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and, and we just have to be resilient because that is what makes our cities. Actually, uh, an architect who passed away uh, recently, Pablo Mendez da Rocha, he said that cities are not made by buildings. It is people who make the cities. And he is absolutely right. It is our responsibility as a society and it is our right as people to participate in making our city happen we have to participate if we are going to get the city that we want to see we have to so all of the all of the outrage about for example uh, portobello plaza be being taken over by, by a developer that's that we are right to be outraged yes all of the outrage about uh, rents being too high because all of that is being built is built to rent we are right to be outraged about that uh, oh, you know, being upset because people are uh, because streets aren't safe. We are right to be upset about that. Being uh, completely uh, provoked by 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 economists who are who are calling uh, people who participate in the democratic process NIMBYs, which is a pejorative, basically a slur. We are right to be outraged by that. They are wrong to be doing all of this, and we are absolutely right to be talking about this. So I, I think that there is. Um, I I commend you greatly for. Uh, for having all of these conversations, I think that, that what you're doing is absolutely beneficial to the, the democracy that you're that you're living in, uh, to the society that that is going to follow uh, behind you. I think um, I, I absolutely commend you for doing this. I think that you are going to receive much more criticism, 
Um, but I think that you are very resilient and, and that's, that's exactly what we need. Yeah, and I, I thank you as well for having two big NIMBY cyclists on your podcast. Um, <laughs> Listen, before this, really, really, really appreciate this conversation. I think that like, obviously we know there's loads of crappy things happening right now, but it's people like you as well who are informing people and who are actually, you know, walking the walk as well as, 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 as talking and educating people about it is so, so vital. But right before you go, a quick answer to this one. If there was one person that you would like to see who's in the mix... Uh, not a hypothetical, let's say, to be a minister for housing, who do you think would do a good job? Oh, no, Bryn. Off the bat. Like, the, the man understands housing. He's educated in it, and he's educated himself in it. I think Killian Woods would give it a shot as well. Yes. Uh, he, he, he goes to the right sources. Um, but at the end of the day, what you need is somebody who is not only informed, but has a vision for housing. And what I'll say, I've said it before, but we don't have housing policy. We have property policy. So if you want housing, you need housing policy. If you want sustainable communities, you need housing policy that's based on outcomes. What we have at the moment is sort of just outsourcing all of that to the, the private sector. Can, um, I just pu- can I just push back of like, you're saying that Anna Brain would be the one because he has a vision. Is that necessarily because he shares your vision? I'm just pushing back on like, what let's say the bros who object to this shit is like yeah but that's your vision do you know what i mean um i I think that's like a fair criticism and i think like a criticism that could be put to him or a question that could be put to him was is would you repeal section 28 on planning act i know that owner Britain has come out and said before that we should get rid of you know svpr 8 that refers to lower standards or build to rent which is maybe you know a source of a lot of uh, criticism, but will he go the whole hog and get rid of Section 28 entirely? That's a question uh, to him. But I think at the end of the day, he's somebody that's actually presenting solutions that are based off of agency, and that's based off of the government taking back this power that it's just ceded to uh, to to a lobby. Yeah, I, I would put in, you know, I think it is hypothetical because I don't think that these the names I'm going to say are, are political, but I would like to see somebody like uh, Frank McDonald or even Orla Hegarty take on the, the challenge of, of uh, Minister for Housing because uh, the, the challenge of housing is actually the challenge of urbanity. What we are what we are doing now is like a frenzy, a feeding frenzy of like build homes, you know, and put numbers on the board, make sure that we have more numbers so that whenever it comes time to vote, we can say we put in this many homes in, in the ground and, and mm. these guys opposed to housing. These are these people are anti-housing. Uh, and the reason why I'm saying people like Frank McDonald and Orla Hegarty is because their vision is is right now, I, I think, a political, even though housing and architecture is, is very much political. You can't separate architecture from politics end off. Um, but the reason why I want them is, or, or because I think, or I think about them is because they have a very unique voice about it. And because they, they have observed with, with care and, and through time, how the policies have affected the built environment. And I think that they have a way of describing things in a way that allows more people to understand a lot of the, a lot of how I understand Dublin is because of, I've listened to people like Frank and Orla. So maybe, Architects and, and people like that could could also step up. But uh, in terms of politicians who are active, I would also say that Owner Brain has, you know, every time he's in a conversation, he has 
books about ur- urbanism right behind his back. He mm-hmm. has book, you know, he talks about, uh, he, he reads uh, art uh, and he has Joseph Albers, who was a teacher in the Bauhaus. So there is a higher complexity in, in what Ona Brin talks about and, and what he reads than, than meets the eye, I think. So maybe that's something that we can explore. We live in hope uh, that good people will be in charge who actually understand, as you say, urbanism, urbanity, and uh, as Andre, you say, about places that we actually want to live and grow and thrive in. Um, We're not just uh, drones that live in units. Um, Alfonso Bonilla and Rob Curley, thank you so much uh, for your insight. Really appreciate it. And we will definitely be checking uh, back in with you as uh, as things change because the consciousness has raised. Thanks so much. Thank you. What's getting in the sea this week, Andrea Horan? Uh, getting in the sea is uh, it's so annoying. Like, and it's a it's obviously the product of the world we live in and where metaverses are being invented and online universes but the fact that people feel inclined when something so terrible is happening and I'm talking about the funeral of Ashling um that whilst that was happening people were sliding into uh, people's dms going you should be posting about this now and and kind of policing people's grief and how they post online I just think it's the most like awful thing to be deciding of how a people should be feeling b how they should be communicating and see how they should be using their social media platforms it's none of your fucking business let people feel what they feel act as they act and i think it was just a very bizarre situation the last few days with the with the funeral being screened on television and i get that like people felt a part of it and it kept like people from going to the funeral um, which allowed for more privacy, but also the sharing of images of the kids that, that Ashing was the teacher of. It was just all a bit like, I don't know. I just think don't expect, and f- like we live in a culture now that expects people to share every emotion. And if they're not sharing it on their social media, it doesn't exist. And we covered this a good bit during the pandemic, but like, especially when things like this happen it's like people don't owe you every emotion on their social media so back off agree also (laughs) just everybody just needs to quit social media that's another topic um (laughs) and now it's time for it's bananas This is bananas, isn't it? So, whatever about Joe Rogan, he's doing his bits. He believes in his bits and taking fucking whatever he wants to take and pushing misinformation and checking facts and fighting back on stuff that's actually he's been told is not true. He's like, but let's check that again. What about if I change the narrative of it? Does that make it true? That's not like people have freedom of expression. The bananas thing is Spotify fund this. Like this big corporate thing who have a responsibility to their listeners fund Joe Rogan because 
he obviously generates clicks and listenership and blah, blah, blah for the uh, platform. But it is absolutely banana town that they, that we don't question it a bit more. The fact that they do this sponsorship um, and provide him with such, like it was the biggest sponsorship of a podcast ever when Spotify did this. $100 million, $100 million Spotify uh, gave to Joe Rogan. To this dude who's literally spouting a load of shit. Um, that's the technical term of whatever came to it. Uh, now, last week, a coalition of 270 scientists and medical professionals uh, issued an open letter to Spotify urging them to establish a misinformation policy after an episode of the Joe Rogan experience among its most listened to podcasts promoted what they said were baseless conspiracy theories. Wouldn't be the first time um, on his podcast. So, like, it's not that it's just, I don't agree with it, what he's saying. Like, you literally have a f- scientists and medical professions going, dude, you're absolutely wrong. Um, and still being funded by Spotify. It's just, it just is bananas. No? Absolutely bananas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> cool. Now it's time for our fave bits. I'll start this week. I don't have one fave bit, isn't that? Oh, actually I do. The Manaw Collective, which is a group of women, uh, Irish-based street artists who've come together doing loads of fab projects. And like, it just, I thought it was interesting of how we, I've always known there was all these female street artists, but the collective coming together really positions them in a position of like, collectiveness and how many great street artists there are um, because traditionally street art has been primarily a male situation but all these women are doing fucking whopper things and uh, they were brought to my attention by a, a collaboration they did with the Brew Port House Company, Brew Company and their cans are stunning um, so have a look out for them and uh, Manaw, I thought it was a really clever play on obviously the Irish for Manaw Women. Indeed. M-I-N-A-W. Fab. My fave bits are... So I watched um, this film that I've been meaning to watch for ages uh, called So Long My Son on Mubi. It is a film by uh, Wang Xiaoshui. It is a Chinese drama set over a couple of decades about just this kind of family and what they experienced um a tragedy happens basically and there's two families trying to negotiate the outcome of it. But what I thought was extraordinary, first of all, it's absolutely stunningly directed. It's so beautiful. It's around three hours, five minutes long, three hours. So it's really going on this journey, this immersive thing. But what was amazing about it was how it demonstrated how cultural changes and oppression in China across this era, including um, the single child policy and economic reforms and the general dogma of communism um, and nationalism impacted people's real lives and how the director and the uh, like portrays this in terms of the stuff that's not being said. And I found that there were loads of correlations with the Irish experience around theocracy and oppression. And I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. I watched it on movie. So if you're looking for a really great film uh check that one out it's from 2019 
Another film that I watched again for the second time, actually might have been better the second time. I first saw in the cinema uh, is Summer of Soul, Questlove's documentary. Obviously, it's uh, a very celebrated documentary about the Harlem Cultural Festival that happened uh, the same summer as Woodstock, but was kind of completely forgotten due to kind of black history being erased. And it's if you haven't watched this doc, I think you watch it on Disney+. Plus. It is just brilliant. It's like the greatest lineup ever. And all of the cultural and political and social context that orientated around this particular time in American history and this particular time in African-American culture, stunning. Um, and then my other fave bit, Kay Tempest is one of my favourite artists. Like I always go see them whenever they play or at any festival. You know, every play they've written, books of poetry, novel, you know, the uh, latest book um, from last year on connection, or maybe it's from the year before, amazing book about art and performing and, and poetry. And they've got a new track and a new album coming out and a new Irish tour as well that's going to be in May. The new track is called More Pressure. If you're looking for the uh, the feeling of release that we urgently need coming out of, hopefully, fingers crossed, of this time, this is the one. Uh, and the record is called The Line is a Curve. So more pressure, banger. So check well, that out. I just want to wreck your fave bits by a statement that Who came out with going, this pandemic is nowhere near over. Cool. That is absolutely not a fave <laughs> bit. <laughs> um, fave bit. Although Mike Ryan could be in the fave bits, um, just generally rolling week on week. And now it's time for Book of the Week. What's our book of the week, Una? So shout out to Mancon McGann, who has yet another new book on the way. This one is called Donna Grana, Nasty Words for People. Into it. If you're looking to add to Bitchy. your... Bitchy. If you're looking to add for your vocabulary of insults and need them to happen, Oscuelga, uh, then this is one for you. It's an illustrated treasure trove of more brilliant Irish words and phrases and their meanings and origin, origins. Just, you may not have seen it. It was on the internet. Um, there was this video of two men cursing each other in Irish. Oh, I saw they- a column, column from Daddy sent it to me. Shout out to Daddy's. <laughs> it's so I was like, people shouting at each other having a massive fight in Irish. Stunning. Stunning. This. Um, for example, one of the insults that you could use from Donna Grana is Gurama, which means a cold-blooded, lethargic, sit-by-the-fire person. Me. <laughs> a lazy person who dawdles by the fireside. Yeah, that's totally me. It's Crank up that heat, bitch. It's the specificity of Irish insults that I really love. So this is an illustrated book of 200 number copies. Um, people who will, will have picked up Mancon's uh, C. Tamagotchi book will be familiar with these kind of small, smaller pressings that he does. Obviously, we all know 32 Words for Field and the Banshee Fingers book about nature. So these are kind of smaller, limited edition ones. And also shout out to Red Fox Press who uh, printed this book. Definitely putting them on my like manifestation board for 2022 to do something. They print absolutely stunning books Super highly regarded internationally, as well as very much appreciated in Ireland. 
Their books are in the Tate and MoMA and the Met, and they're all made in their studio, which is in a cottage on Ackle Island in County Mayo. So that is a delicious combo. Um, so that is our book of the week. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan and Costway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack and Sarah Fox did all of our design. Go on, Andrea. What's a tuna chicken roll? Thank you for asking, Una. <laughs> this, <laughs> this week's tuna chicken roll is called Stardust Nedley with Dust Groovy 69. So I just want to tell a bit of a backstory to this song because I remember Jane Fonda counting um, and I remembered I loved this song. And when I what went do you mean you remember Jane Fonda? I'm back two, three, four, oh, right, okay, five, yeah. six, seven, eight, and jump. And I was like, oh, I remember that being on a track. And so I went on a little YouTube journey and I found that it was when I eventually, I, like I was putting in Jane Fonda counting song. And it was, I came to Jim Tonic by Bob Sinclair, um, which was co-produced by Thomas Bangletter from Daft Punk mm-hmm. um, and a 12 minute section of improvised funk by James Andrew Dakin. Now, it was produced and included on Sinclair's album Paradise, um, but it includes a sample uh, called Arms, which was a workout recording by Jane Fonda. But Fonda refused clearance of the vocals, so they could never release it as a single. Then there was a big drama between Bangletere and uh, Sinclair of because Sinclair said he made this track and Bangletere was like, you fuck a bitch. They never worked together again. Then there was loads of all these people who kind of took it as and did it as white labels so that it, they could release it without her uh, permission. And there was, if you go through YouTube, you kind of come through a lot of them and they just don't have the passion and the beat and the intro and the energy that this version does. And then in a work, so basically I spent a long time looking for, this is a long winded tune and chicken around, isn't it? I spent a long time looking for this on the internet, couldn't find it. And at the moment I'm clearing out my back room and I have like four CDs beside my uh, computer that were from my past life. I have a mix by um, Pogo by Nick James from Body Tonic, which I would love to get off that uh, CD. Uh, Sexosonic, I thought it was you. And then this groovy 69 Stardust medley. And I was like, mm, that might be the song I've been looking for. And I played it and it was. Isn't that the most serendipitous thing in the world? That is absolutely amazing. I'm here for Andrea Horan's crate digging escapade. <laughs> crate digging from her desk. Anyway, so the tuna chicken roll, it's an absolute banger. I, I'm getting a bit nervous with some of the songs I'm putting through as tuna chicken rolls because Andrew's being very judgmental. <laughs> Not into the macarena, actually. So hopefully this one gets a thumbs up from Andrew. Uh, yeah, Andrew, if you enjoy uh, this track, please leave your own little comment or review right here. This tuna chicken roll is approved. Uh, okay, let's hear it. That was... Um, I've our, been in a Mulally. All right, I've been in a Mulally. <laughs> and I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was Busting the Nimby Myths. <laughs>